The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to The Creative Relay the podcast where Australia's most inspiring creatives talk to the creatives that most inspire them. Brought to you by Smith & Weston. Last time on The Creative Relay, Steve Rogers spoke to James McGrath. Now it's James's turn to pick up the baton on this episode of The Creative Relay. So, James McGrath, welcome back to The Creative Relay. Thank you. James, the last time we chatted, you said it was quite a daunting task to think about who you were going to ask when we turned the tables and you became the interviewer, but you said you were looking for someone who would offer a different perspective on design thinking. Have you found that person, James? I have. I think this series has been defined by people who actually would rather do rather than say, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's, I've wanted to continue that because I think there's a substance to this um, that we need to continue. But I, I did think a deviation into well, design in a sense, but still cultural um, influences, uh, strategic, you know, think design and thinking was, was obviously is the, is the thematic, you know, connector of all of these relay interviews. But I was really keen to have a robust conversation with, with someone who I am always um, mightily impressed by. And so I was, was very nervous about asking, but as the same almost identical process to me, um, Michaela Webb, who I have asked um, to... Um, to interview has said yes. Okay, well, uh, why don't we get her in then? So, Michaela Webb, welcome to the Creative Relay. Thank you. James is very excited to have you here. So over to you, really, James. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Michaela and uh, why you've chosen her. So um, I've had the opportunity on quite a few occasions, but I guess particularly as a Melbourne person, I'm acutely aware of the influence that... um, that Round has as a design practice in, in Melbourne, um, founded by Michaela um, in partnership with Robert Nudds, a brilliant company um, who I've just, um, yeah, we, any conversation we've had has been expansive, has been humble, but has actually also been, I guess, the intelligence um, of good thinking, great thinking is solving real problems. Um, it's not surface, it's not aesthetics necessarily, or it does come down to that occasionally. It's much more about um, fundamental thinking. But I thought maybe, Michaela, just give us a little top-line sense of round as a practice. Sure. Round, I mean, we've been going for 16 years um, now, and both Rob and I started the company after five years in the UK. And I think from that time, there was a lot of disruption and at that time. And so we sort of wanted to take uh, that new way of thinking and bring together sort of both of our skills to, to kind of combine that to kind of create round. And I think that's, for us, um, learning learning through being in the UK and, and in New Zealand and that time, and I might talk about that in a, in a little bit, but that sort of learning has allowed us to kind of create the company that we believe is needed to make the kind of difference in business. And uh, so I suppose Round has 20 people. We have a mixture of, of people from, as James put it, a mixture of different skill sets, uh, strategic designers and, and creative strategists, and they all come together to really try and help 
braver organisations um, understand their point of difference. And when we can kind of work with that and we are able to articulate a purpose for those organisations, that's when we really can make a sort of more substantial difference to their world and maybe one day to, to the greater sense of the world. I know you've had a couple of seismic um, moments in your career that have really um, have actually created an extraordinary influence on your on your career. So it'd be great to, if I think about, I guess, creative consciousness in us as Australians, maybe go back a little into your time in the UK, which was clearly incredibly influential. After I graduated and, and finished my degree and then worked as a graphic designer for a few years, and, and just before going to the UK, I did spend two years lecturing full-time. I think I thought I wasn't going to be a graphic designer and was going to be a lecturer and, and move into education. And so going back into the industry, into the UK, was almost uh, sort of even more daunting because I hadn't been working as a designer for two years, which but actually had been almost doing the equivalent of, of a sort of master's as, as a you know, it's, it's the way I think about it because I was actually thinking about design process and design practice mm-hmm. and, and working on how I can develop other designers and design thinking, which um, was two years full-time but has actually been so influential in in my career. And and so going into into London and then working, getting a position at Wolf Hollands, and at that time Wolf Hollands was the largest independently owned branding company in the world. So it was huge. And sort of being a part of that, I think it was, uh, there was 240 people approximately, there was 80 designers, then there was a whole team of Mac operators and cutting and pasting departments. And it was so big that as a, as a mid-weight designer like myself, you could almost feel very, very lost in the whole Wolf Hollands world. And it was also fascinating seeing older designers, which now, you know, I'm, I'm one of those, which is kind of a shock, but one of those older designers, 40s, 50s, 60-year-olds, that designed in a completely different way. So I think that whole lecturing and, and that whole being part of an education sense and then moving into Wolf Hollands and seeing these older designers not working on computers and almost doing a similar task to what I was doing as a lecturer was really, I think, uh, quite a a big insight for me at that time. In what way, Michaela? How did that make you feel seeing those those guys? Was it just the familiarity? Well, I think up to then, I always thought you had to sort of sit on a computer and produce the work yourself. And that was a realisation that actually you could direct work, you could come up with an idea, you could work with... There was a huge... um, strategic focus at Wolf Hollands, which was, for me, was the first time I'd ever seen that. And to see the depth of thinking that went into a large organisation or into a brand and understanding how far-reaching that actually was and realising the part that I'd always learnt, the graphic design part, the traditional graphic design part, which is such a small part of what we actually had to do. And it wasn't until you saw those older designers that had been around for a very long time and understood the impact that they could make not needing to use a tool like a computer and, and still make a, a huge difference and work with others and collaborate with others and getting the best out of the others to produce the work. But up until that stage, it sort of always felt like you had to create the work and you had to be the one that produced it out of that machine. It's quite fascinating, isn't it, I think, to have that moment. Well, you're talking about what the influence and the thoughtfulness of what you're doing is and where the output is one aspect of what you're doing, but actually design thinking is actually so much more than that. And I guess and your ability, almost you grabbing onto that sense of actually the influence, not an ego sense, but I guess how far-reaching 
great thinking and depth and how the sustainability of great design and great design thinking actually mm. is. I guess when you think about your starting round, to some degree, that's that's the next stage of that, isn't it? You're actually obviously very influenced by your experience. How does that affect what you do at, at round? And I guess you're now, as you say, you're now that designer trying to create that degree of of strategic broadness, but also the specific nature of design. How do you, how does that work on a daily basis? I think that, you know, the balance is very hard all the time and that bridging that gap between the strategy and the design component has been something that we're constantly sort of focused on. I suppose for me at Will Follins, the, the taking from Will Follins and then taking that into round what was what was brilliant was the strategic thinking and and that's what I learned so much you know the craft of that strategic thinking and the way the process of that and how deep you need to go but what I what frustrated me about being in a place like Will Follins was the fact that at that stage account management was always front and center to the client so as a designer you never got that access you were never able to kind of really get that connection with the client you, sort of there was this barrier between you and the client so then moving to spin in London which was very focused on the craft and was really at the forefront of pushing craft at that time in London. So it was very interesting going from a very big company to a very small company, but it but I wasn't the only one moving there. So were some of those big brands. So Orange, who I'd worked with for quite a while at Wolf Hollands, they decided to move to a small company like Spin and then and then Spin sort of brought me along as as part of that team. And it's I suppose the thinking at Spin was where you were able to be very design focused and nimble and agile and work in a fast, flexible way, but you didn't have that strategic thinking. So you were never able to make the same impact on business that I was able to do at Wolf Holland. So starting round was trying to take both of those aspects, this idea of this craft and the flexibility and the nimbleness and the agileness, but being front and centre with the clients and not seeing ourselves as different disciplines. So there wasn't strategy and account management and design. We had to kind of think about how we could see ourselves all as part of that process trying to help solve those so solve those challenges with clients. So breaking down some of those traditional roles and also trying to take the best of both of those two worlds and trying to make more of an impact here in um in Australia with with round has sort of been the kind of impetus for for setting it up and how we how we work. Do you feel like you've succeeded in that because that sounds really interesting that you've taken you know you saw two very different components from those mm. two places combined with, I guess, the the background that you had uh, in the education framework. Yeah. It uh, sounds like a really kind of rich tapestry that you've borrowed from there. Do you think it's been successful? I think it has been successful, definitely. We wouldn't still be going, I don't think. But I think the, the hardest thing is it's taken, and it's something that James and I have spoken a lot about, actually, is the climate within Australia. It's actually taken that idea of educating clients all the time um, and trying to change their perceptions of um, of, of yourself. I mean, they have perceptions of what a graphic design company is and, and what a branding company is. It's taken a long time for the for Australia to actually understand the benefit and, and the impact that that can make. And I think, you know, we're constantly trying to identify the challenge that we need to solve. And often it's never the challenge that they come in to see us about. And we always sort of think about there's always there's always either a strategic challenge or there is a design challenge. There's often... 
um, when they come to see us is not both of those things. It's about trying to identify what that is and and, and work with that. But I, I mean, I think we, we just try and stay true to the agenda. And, and sometimes clients aren't at that stage, you know, when they come to see us, but often they'll come back within a few years, we find. So they realise, no, they... You know, they come and see us, they just wanted a, a quick refresh of an identity and we're trying to give them so much more than that and that frustrates them. But then a few la- years later they go, actually, no, now we want to um, go through the whole process and be mm. more rigorous and mm. be more prescient in, in our thinking, a bit more long-term in their thinking rather than sort of short-term, quick turnaround needs. And I think that's the, the thing I love about your approach is the degree in which communication, design, all that thinking, the seismic influence it can have about how you feel. And I guess that's the nature of where we're all heading to, isn't it? I mean, you've had you've had a lot of success over many years. If I go to a particular part of your business, in this, I guess with a relationship with Andrew McConnell and the, the restaurant um, business, which I guess is a, is a shorter cut. It's still incredibly mm. sophisticated and hard to do, but it is an environment, isn't it? It's an experience. Yep. experience and I yeah. guess you can't – it's not surface. It actually has to convey – and that's obviously a brilliant. Um, that that's a. It's a very particular, and obviously you've got enormous clients as well. Does the personal nature of that is that easier? Yeah, I think it is. It's definitely easier. Yeah, I think it is. I think. I mean, we love. I'm Rob, um, my business partner and husband. He he's a qualified chef as well, and has had restaurants in the past. So before we set up round, I think food and and restaurants has definitely been you know, that this other sort of passion that's come through. But working with Andrew McConnell, I think, has been f- for us, even though, like you just mentioned, James, is a very small, it's a small example, but it's about how you can be, understand the difference of each of those different food experiences and try and create something that's completely different that aligns to what what the chef is trying to explore and and Andrew's been quite brave about different things that he's explored and we're able to kind of take that and uh, try and give give the audience a sort of sense of, of what they might experience and through you know I think we've been working together for now 15 years on on all sorts of different venues with um and cumulus wasn't the beginning but every time he's come up with a completely different philosophy and we've worked together on on how to get that philosophy to work and then and and then what the what the brand might be to kind of convey that i'd love to get to the nature of great reductive design i think that's the thing that 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 again it's finding real true problems to solve. I guess, how do you personally approach that process? Because I think that's where mm. influential design and, and solving real problems, not fake ones. Maybe just talk about that a bit. Well, I think, um, you know, I think for years you, you do the work and then I think a few, about three or four years ago, I really tried to articulate. Um, I think I got asked a question to sort of really articulate what it was that round tries to do and, 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 it, was, and it was hard at, at first. But it sort of came down to these two words, which was, being purposeful and this idea of intuition. And so I talk about the design philosophy as, as being purposeful intuition and this idea of this this pursuit of always being purposeful, um, being calculated, being um, really deliberate about what we do and almost resolute. So being understanding what the problem is we have to solve, solve and being very calculated about how we're going to solve that. But then you have this layer of intuition which 
and and all of the designers I have, they either have a strong, stronger sway, either one or the other. And I, and and actually, probably the experience I've had has had that too. But the intuition, that idea of using your instinct, um, being really aware, but also having that this idea of empathy, and you know, even with Andrew McCoddle, being empathetic and respectful about what he's trying to create, and finding what our role is that and w- within that. I mean, I think there's sometimes graphic design can be almost arrogant at times and can take over um, what is the intent of the place. And we've got to really a balance a fine line but between making sure that what we're what we're communicating is actually the client's intent, not not our own. So that idea of perception and this innate sense of, of what you're doing. So so those two things um, are things that I try and measure our work. And I always, whenever we're sort of having a, a conversation within the studio, a debate or, or trying to articulate what it is we're trying to do, it's always I, I try and make sure there is a balance of those two those two aspects that kind of bring together and and help us be more reductive and more simplistic in, in, in what we do create. I think it's a really beautiful articulation of it, actually, Michaela. And, you know, just having a look at uh, some of the case studies of work that you've done, I, I can really sense that in the work for Hotel Hotel that you did. Mm. I, I really feel that that sort of brings that purposeful uh, intuition to life. It was a really lovely yeah. example, I thought. Oh, thank you. The design thinking in that uh, w- w- was really interesting. I mean, it was a long, long project, but the, the great thing was that the client, the Malongolo Group, and we worked a, a, a lot with Nectar, um, but we, we worked very closely with him. And what was really interesting was he wanted to bring in artists, different thinkers into these strategic sessions that went on all day. And at the time... Probably we had to put aside the purposeful part and just enjoy the process. He was very interested in just being part of this art practice where we just discussed ideas and allowed those ideas to completely go off on different tangents. And I suppose being someone like myself who who had um, has run a, a business where time equals money, there was often a kind of feeling where I'd come out of these sessions going, I don't know what we what we actually achieved. And I think I think he was actually he was really influential on on trying to push that thinking as far as he could. Now, um, we so it was a very collaborative team. We worked with Barry Barton from Right Angle, and there was ourselves. And the client put us together, and actually it worked really well. We had to work on a hotel philosophy and on a manifesto. And what was what was the brilliant thing about that identity? And it probably was quite a big turning point if I think about identities that I've worked on in the past. In the past, as a graphic designer, I went like when I was at Wolf Hollands, and I did worked a bit on the Tate identity. You can Included that identity, you produced a whole style guide, you gave the rules over to someone else, and it was your job was finished. But it was meant to stay the same. And and when I worked with General Motors, I mean, I had to police how people use those identities. Oh no, no, that logo's too big, or the isolation area is not not big enough. And and then what's happened in our industry was I realised, especially with and, and Hotel Hotel is a perfect example of that was creating an identity that was at the beginning when you handed it over. So um, you gave tools and you gave perimeters and you gave philosophies, but you didn't conclude anything, which was 
so it's that idea of a snowball, I suppose, mm. that could create momentum because no one wants all these style guides anymore. Our world is moving so quickly that we need to create identities that actually allow the people that work with them room and space to be part of those identities and take them on a different kind of journey. We can't be so precious as to hold on to them and create rules anymore. We've got to be able to let them sort of keep continue to grow. And that that really was a good example of of something that that did that, and and we're continually trying to do that, of course, with every job. But it was a it was a great example of of how that worked. I think to me, hotel hotel is which obviously sits in I think most of our consciousness as a as a complete experience. It's not the surface. I mean, I guess the very moment that hotel hotel was repeated, um, the the sense of understanding um, when you walked into that hotel hotel for the first time. I don't think we can underestimate the influence that that has had in a moment in time. In, and again, you talk about Australia. We talk about Australia from a design cringe point of view. You know, how, how do we live with creativity? Do we struggle with creativity culturally? And I think that that is a huge gift in somehow you've made it complete. Mm-hmm. You all knew what you were doing. And I guess you also got encouraged to be extraordinarily brave and even the approach. I guess how do you marry that with the, the driving agenda and the the joy of that, but also the having your own business. How do you grapple with that, being your own business and having to pay staff and having to keep the lights on? How does that work? It's, it's extremely hard, actually. I, I mean, you know, and, and I think jobs like Hotel Hotel and, and some of the restaurant work we do, they don't really make a lot of financial sense sometimes. I mean, you, you just try not to look at the numbers uh, at times and then every now and then, you know, I suddenly get get all the statements and um, go, yikes, we need to completely, <laughs> we need to sort of um, <laughs> go, go much faster Who's and much quicker. It's like, oh. But Rob and I have, I mean, we love what we do and we believe um, wholeheartedly that we what we want to do is try and make a difference. And so that agenda, of course, is number one. We The, the financial side of things, we've got better and better over the years and we're very, we're very transparent with our team. So our team... The numbers have become something we've become more and more transparent about. And so, and we've also tried to be much more calculated about what we can lose on a job, I suppose, and what we have to make on a job to kind of keep keep the doors open and keep paying, you know, all the bills. So I think that by being very outcome focused, it's helped us Instead, for a long time, we've been measured in time. We measure everything in time. What we're trying to do a lot more in the last few years is become very outcome focused and working towards more of that sort of idea of value billing, which is quite different, I suppose, in our world. Probably something more familiar maybe in uh, the advertising world. But that outcome, if we can keep people focused on the outcome and the longer term objectives that we're trying to create, then, then the finances seem to be able to work themselves out a little bit more. I guess the trick for you is also is making really big clients that you have, like QIC, mm. kind of also scale them back to being value billing makes the small, you have them in context, but equally huge clients, you have them in context. Because I guess you've got clients, the scale that is so big that you could kind of think, is this some sort of charade that we're, do we get to, as a company our size, do we get to be, do we get to be influential on, you know, some of the country's biggest clients? And I think that's the, to me, value building must work in reverse as well and that you can put them in context, but your influence is massive. And I guess that does come back to the, going to the very core, the purpose of an organisation. We've been working with QIC probably for about two and a half years now. And 
It stands for Queensland Investment Corporation, and then we work with a division which is called Global Real Estate, so it's uh, QIC GRE. And I think, you know, when we started working with them, they basically said, we have not been able to land you know, the analogy was we've not been able to land the plane. We're being disrupted. Our industry is being disrupted. They are. They own um, a huge lot of retail spaces. Uh, they own shopping centres, the likes of Eastland or Castle Towers at Castle Hill in Sydney. And they own sort of 13 big, big retail shopping centres in Australia. And their industry, retail is being disrupted. So they, they really understood that they needed to make a change, but could not understand how to make that change. So we came in and worked with them strategically for about a year, running series of workshops, working with all of the executive team and trying to take them on the mind shift of becoming, instead of being rent collectors, which is what they saw themselves as, and taking them into that idea of placemaking and creating places that deliver experiences that people actually want and, and need. So what are those experiences and what are those places and what do we need to make these places that people want to actually be part of rather than just how how much more can we buy and consume um, and how much more rent can we collect. So that's a big transition that they've been on and, and we've been on with them. The strategy is all there and, and we've made the shift with marketing and now the biggest thing is trying to make the shift culturally within the organisation. So how do you change leasing um, and how do you change the sort of investment management structure to align back to that strategy? So there's a huge lot of cultural alignment work that has to be done internally. And that isn't, I mean, we have a, we know the theory in it, but it's not something that as a, as a studio practice where, you know, we, we don't have the skill set to make those changes. So we've had to kind of work with other people to try and bring those people in to, to kind of help make that change. Could you give an example, Michaela, of like what sort of things culturally you'd like to see change? What they do at the moment is they try and collect, or what they have done for a long time, is they try and collect the most amount of rent yeah. for for a retail space. But if you could apply a neighbourhood strategy, which we've worked on with them, where we understand what is what is it truly that makes up a neighbourhood? So what are the what are the things that should be next to each other? Uh, for a long time, they've kind of worked in that way. We have all of the majors over that end of the mall. We'll have all of the mini majors down this end. We'll put fashion in that corner. But if we look at um, a marketplace in a high street, it's actually the mixture of all of those things that actually make up a true neighbourhood. I think Selfridges in the UK is a really good example of a place that had to change, and they changed uh, quite a number of years ago, but they had to change to go back to what is more that marketplace idea where you might put makeup right up against chocolate, right up against perfume, and then there's fashion, so that you don't feel like it's all prescribed and it's not all sort of mapped out to the nth degree. So trying to allow them to think about what is a neighbourhood and be strategic about planning that before they actually start to go out and sell leases for different retail space. Right. And that's been something we've worked a lot on for 80 Collins in the middle of this, uh, the city, working out what the strategy is for leasing, working out how to create a, a environment that each tenant works with one another and, and actually is better for the sum of all of them rather than, so this idea of greater than the sum of its parts, rather than a, a space where when Coles leaves, 
the whole space dies. There's a really simple example there, isn't there, in Collins, where there's actually the configuration, the way that the spaces are actually configured. They're they're sort of Tetris-like, aren't they? So people can have multiple floors but drive through the building and then they can not just floor by floor. Yeah, so tenants can go across multiple levels and almost create different experiences on each of those levels. And And that's really interesting when you think about the food space and the different kind of restaurant offerings that they're going to be putting in that space. And you can have one operator creating, you know, an oyster bar down at one end and a a gin room at the other and then a kind of fine dining restaurant on another, but be able to use all of those different levels and spaces. But also this idea of these sort of laneways and these pathways that are going to be intersecting through the spaces is quite interesting for for Australia, I think, because it's it's actually quite revolutionary the way that the architecture has been Again, if you think about placemaking and the nature of just not taking the standard but actually finding a different way, not for novelty value but actually because it's going to be better, I think that goes to that higher order sense of if you can create the the ambition, Mm -hmm. then obviously architectural decisions, leasing decisions, all those things, which of course are not design, they're not graphics, they're not surface, you haven't even talked about that, it's actually... The influence is massive, and I guess we all oscillate, don't we? We sometimes we're in the C-suite, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're talking to the marketers, sometimes we're talking to the the building um, owners. That must be the joy with QIC is that you get to have a degree of influence. Um, how do you maintain that? How do you keep that topped up? I mean, I think probably it's a, it's a really good question because it's something we thought about a lot in the last five years across our whole business, not just with QIC, where for a long time we dealt with the marketing department of an organisation. And the hard thing at times with the marketing department is that they're looking for short-term sales. They're looking for, got to get quickly, do something, market something, get it out there. And what we realised was that there was only so much value we could add to that conversation or, or that work. And we definitely still do that work. But what we needed to do was work higher up in organisations where we needed to kind of work with the people that had the longer term the longer term thinking. And so with QIC, what's been critical is working with the head of strategy on what are those longer term goals and how we map those goals out. And then marketing falls as a part of that. At times we're working on how to continually get that strategy bedded down within that organisation. At times we might be working on a new identity for one of the places. And then at times we might be working on with marketing on how to activate or bring that to life. And I guess it's very critical for us to be working with those people that have that long-term thinking for us to be able to kind of continue to make a difference and and probably continually remind them of what the purpose was at the beginning. And one of the big things we have to do is continually try to write our own briefs, not wait for them to give us the briefs because then we're not really applying the thinking to their purpose. We're trying. So with QIC, it's very easy at times to kind of go, oh, we'll just wait for them to give us that brief. But it, it sometimes doesn't come because they're very busy. Sometimes we have to look at what are the what are the issues that they're not doing as part of their purpose and what is a brief that we can create to try and help solve that. And sometimes they take that on and sometimes they don't. You know, it's not always the case that they go, yeah, yeah, no, good, good idea. And they sometimes say, oh, no, we can't. That's not, we don't need that now or the timing's not right. And other times they go, no, that's brilliant. We hadn't even thought of that. We need that right now. Can you get that? Can you get that to happen? So that's been a big learning for us with working with QIC was understanding how I think at times as designers we just wait for the clients to do the thinking and give us the brief and we needed to kind of be the ones that 
think about their business as much as they do and and help try and create those briefs. Yeah, I think that's, well, that's the nature of a brilliant relationship. You don't always agree, but you yep. understand you're having big, bigger conversations. But I think it is, I think it's, yeah, full marks to you because I think it's not, they're not easy. I guess the sustainability of, of those cultural decisions, and I'm not just talking about in a kind of how long, how enduring the ideas are, but I guess the sustainability of, in general, of design and and the decisions that we make, because often I think there is a, if you go back to restaurants, there's a real mm-hmm. sort of, you literally, I walked past a skip the other day and it's got 150 tonne chairs and, a, you know, you just kind of go, there's a fashionability and there's a, obviously mm-hmm. there's an investment that gets written off over time and from yeah. a value point of view that's done. But where do you sit on sustainability in all of that, mm-hmm. both as an enduring idea but also the nature of actually things being kind of, not forever, but being having a having a yeah. place in the world. I mean, the world doesn't need lots more stuff. And so if we can at least, it's, it's an interesting question, even if we think back to Andrew McConnell, because at one stage I went to him and I said, I think we need to redo Cutler & Co. And he was like, no, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with Cutler & Co. And I think he looked at me like, are you just trying to get more work out of me? And, um, and I was like, but you've changed the whole food offer and you've changed the space and the identity is still sitting where we originally had started from and actually the offer is completely different now and so it needs to go on a journey and, and, and often that doesn't mean to a um, outside consumer they even notice the difference but it's a kind of refinement of what you originally created and I think what we try and do is keep what we've originally created which sometimes I think clients find frustrating they'll come to us and say I want a completely new one just do it all again I don't want any of the old one and we'll always try and keep something or some of the thinking from that from the beginning because that was always the big that was their beginning idea and then try and evolve it from that original thinking and so Cutler and Co's had two changes it's gone on like two major diets is what we've called it sort of slimmed down and become less industrial because the offer has changed and the audience changed so uh, the same applies to cumulus and and lots of people probably don't realize the amount of refinement that you're continually doing you think it was done 10 years ago and it's still the same, but but actually it's not. But I think that idea of sustainability within the practice, if we take out of, uh, for, for me, for my team, what's really important is that idea of, of breaks and people leaving at, at six o'clock, which hasn't been a big part of our industry, I don't think. But having headspace, because I, I, both... Wolf Hollands and at Spin, you were encouraged to work till midnight most nights. You had a chef that cooked for you um, breakfast, lunch and dinner. You'd have all these sort of skinny designer start and it'd come out sort of like 10 kilos heavier. But that idea of just work, you always had to sort of work hard and that was almost, if you're working that hard, you were doing great work. And I think what we've tried to change is that idea of people stopping and having a lot more time of thinking time. And also probably something from the advertising industry is working in duos, working as partnerships rather than working on their own has been a big part of of much stronger and better outcomes because you're able to articulate things to one another and hopefully get a a stronger result, which is more sustainable long-term, but is but is a constant struggle financially because you're kind of having to charge out two people rather than one. Uh, Michaela, you mentioned the things that you've sort of borrowed from the advertising industry. Do you see those those two worlds merging even more or are they being pulled apart? Mm, that's really interesting. Um, I think they're probably being pulled apart a little bit. I think they should merge more, but I think that the advertising industry, it's its probably in a really tricky space right now, if I can 
say that. It's got a lot more mouths to feed than what the design industry has. It's got a, a much stronger financial pool for financial return. And I think at times the sort of lack of innovation, maybe I could say, in the advertising world has been one where the, the, the model hasn't changed. And what we've had to do with our business is every year we're kind of refining and changing that model. And you can't sit still anymore on a model because what I was doing five years ago is not what I'm doing right now in, in our world or even in the 16 years around. It's completely changed. We're not billing anymore for those basic jobs, but the cost of everything has gone up hugely. Whereas I think in advertising, I think it's been a harder it's been a lot harder to change that model. I think the thing that I talked about in the previous discussion with Steve was just the advertising industry's inability to collaborate. Um, and I think collaborate across cross discipline, but also across technology, finding all of those, being open-minded and excited by the future. And I think there is a sort of a sense of structure and how things are done. And as you say, there is a sort of process that has to be adhered to I mean, obviously, you could easily do that from a design point of view, but in a way, the problems you've got to solve create their own context. But collaboration, obviously, is something you feel, well, you can see it in your relationships with your Mm. clients. You're obviously collaborating with people who actually are the idea Sometimes they already they and you know if we talk about you know Buxton Contemporary from a gallery design point of view, those institutions come to you. But they're full of, that's what you find fascinating, don't you? I mean, mm-hmm. by contrast, we do nip and tuck and create this sort of particular relationship, but you don't have, you don't think that way. So collaboration-wise, maybe it's so innate in you, you don't, you don't yeah. even need to articulate it, but obviously you're, there's no inhibition about no. who you're collaborating with, is there? It's just a, there's no process even. It's just yeah. every task has its own natural rhythm. What could we learn? What could advertising learn from what you understand of of advertising, what could we what what could we learn? It's a very hard question because I think the thing about collaborations is they can be they they can be quite risky. And I mean, we did a collaboration at the end of last year, which which turned out terribly. So um, they don't. I mean, they just don't always work. And it and it takes a lot of you know balance and negotiation to get a collaboration right, and a lot of um, respect and empathy for for those different people that you're going to collaborate with. And I think sometimes the sheer scale of someone like Round at a 20-person practice, it's much easier to collaborate with someone like Round and still have a strong sense of what you are, who you are as part of that collaboration than it might be with a a bigger organisation. And I found that with Wolf Hollands, it got so big that it wasn't able to collaborate. So whenever it looked to... You know, it collaborated with clients, but when it when it tried to bring in people from the outside, there was a perception of, no, we've already got someone like that. We're just going to use our internal team. It's interesting because in the last podcast, Michaela, James talked a lot about this, and I found it really fascinating that agencies, that their inability to collaborate comes down to the agency always felt they had to drive it. They had to be the ones in charge. Yep. And I get a sense from the way you've been talking about some of your projects that you don't necessarily feel like you're the king pins there? I think we try and be much more empathetic and try and make it so that when we work on a purpose or on a strategy, it's theirs. It's not our, It's not ours. We don't come in with a big presentation. We work very closely with people and, and often we only produce something that we believe is, is their thinking. We're just articulating it 
and refining it and putting a sense around it, but we're giving them something that's already theirs. And then when we start to visualize that or start to put some tone or some voice around that, it's it's almost like we're bringing that thing that they've already always wanted to life in in a sense. But I think in the advertising world, it's very hard because it's sort of almost you have to lead that, you have to own that, you know, to take it on a journey. And and I, I wonder if, you know, some of that empathy might be something that would be really good for the advertising industry to sort of learn how to actually make it feel like the clients come up with the idea. I mean, we, we try not to do presentations. We try and make it so that it's always a conversation, yeah. less of this idea of a big presentation and this kind of wow moment, but more of something that they constant conversation, constant kind of keeping them part of, of the process. And and I and I wonder if there's something that we haven't done, but might be really good. I suppose learning for um, the advertising agency is being more transparent. And I'm not saying that Clemages don't do this at all. Um, I'm just saying, you know, as a general rule, um, being more transparent about the work that you do do and the failures that you do have. One of the big things a design company in the UK did a few years ago, and I read about it, and actually Pentagram's done this as well, is renting a space and as they're working, getting the designers to con- and, and the strategists to continually just put things up on the wall and just giving the client the keys. And there are no meetings. So the client's just able to kind of go into that space whenever they want and see the kind of level of thinking, the bad ideas, the good ideas, the kind of things that have gone off on different tangents. But being confident enough to kind of um, allow them to see the process, but also, hopefully, they get to the same result that you do yeah, right. and um, kind of go, wow, actually that process has been really interesting. I've educated, you've, you've educated me through something and, and hopefully as designers and strategists, we've also educated ourselves through something as well. And, and at the very least, you've probably justified your invoice you can show them a whole bunch of work that's been going on behind the scenes. <laughs> that's right. It's just the, the bad thing is uh, with our world, you don't want to do all those printouts. But um, We've come to the same conclusion that Tada moment is kind of fails. Yeah. It's an epic fail, whereas actually having that conversation that just seems to go on for quite some time and it can be a dialogue in a room and just and talk about... And there, there are moments, of course, as I said, about professionalism and delivering yeah. a, a moment where you actually at some point, you do, you have to do that. <laughs> Who inspires you from a design point of view? I mean, maybe it's not even designers. You know, who inspires you creatively? I guess I probably am intrigued to know from a design point of view, who do you go to in a moment of wanting a reflection? Mm -hmm. Probably quite diverse sources, I'd imagine. Yeah, it is quite diverse. I think probably for... For true sort of inspiration, it's those kind of out... I'm always fascinated by the kind of outliers of, of the world. I mean, I guess seeing... Um, and hearing, and what's great these days, you can you can get access to that. But seeing very obscure chefs or artists or architects or designers, th- their process and how they work. I mean, I find that really inspiring. I, I love hearing about different places where people get how they get stuck and how they actually get moved through that. So architects, where they get stuck in a process and how they move through that. And it goes back to that idea of being a educator or a lecturer. Um, I, I, you know, I'd often do a project with the students where I'd get them in their first year to understand where they were struggling and then every year they had to do sort of a series of infographics every year and they had to build on it year on year but to understand the different places where they struggled 
through their process. So I find process completely inspiring and, and working through process. And also that idea of being in a new, completely new place. Because if you think about the experiences that we're trying to create, we often move through the day not really taking in everything. And, and we're sort of, um, uh, when, we, when we're a tourist and we go to somewhere that's completely foreign, we take in every single part of that place. And I find the analogy of being a tourist and, and hopefully working as a, as a strategic designer very similar because I think what you have to do is kind of almost take yourself, make yourself feel foreign to that place and understand all of the touch points, the smell and the, the sound and the, uh, all of those different experiential elements to really understand how to put that place back together. I mean, I remember coming off the plane the first time I came to Melbourne and just couldn't believe how loud the birds were. And I often think, now I don't even hear the sound of the birds, but they were so loud. that like, The birds in Australia were really noisy. And um, so that idea of continually trying to go into places like they're the first time you've been into that place and and that's quite a sort of inspiring feeling one thing that i found doing some research on you makala that Mm -hmm. you mentioned how you had a a mentor and i was really curious about how that relationship started and what you think it's it's given you over the years I suppose Rob and I, we, we got to that stage and, you know, I, I guess we all do this. We get to that stage where you needed you need someone to kind of critically push you and challenge you and challenge your ideas. And so we got Ray LeBone yeah. and his partner, Stephanie Piakovic. Right. And Ray LeBone started DesignWorks in New Zealand a long time ago and ran DesignWorks for, for, you know, quite a number of years before he sold it. And then he started up Better by Design, a program in New Zealand. And then he was brought out by the Victorian government to run a program in Victoria to actually understand how we can become stronger in that sort of design sense. So we approached him and he said no at first and then sort of kind of kept kept on it. And finally he said yes, he would um, work with us, both with him and his partner. And that, that sort of, that idea of him continually challenging us for the first two years working with him, it was, I think, the hardest thing we'd ever done because every single thing we we produced and did, we, we actually sent over to him. And the amount of thinking and rigour he put into that and then threw that back at us really, you know, has helped us become the, the kind of business that we are now. And we still, uh, we had a session with him last year and we'll probably do another session with him this year, but it's really kind of a two-day session. And you sort of take in different thoughts and ideas or different thinking and use that as a way to, to kind of test out that thinking. Uh, and it's, it's very good having someone from the outside looking at your business and looking back at you and kind of, and critiquing you all the time. And it's also very sort of almost it's a completely hard thing to do and sometimes you come out of these sessions feeling completely devastated and, and flat but but I, I guess it's something that we, we believed I mean we, we try and develop our team and we can't honestly say well, we're going to keep developing them and work on how we push our team and create a developmental culture if we don't develop ourselves so you know I think I think it's definitely something that's very important for us as an industry to have mentors and, and be mentees and to kind of help the whole industry grow because that's that's the way we'll help our industry as practitioners, I think, and, and educate our clients and, and the difference that we can probably make. That, again, just sums up kind of why you are who you are and why you and Rob have the business 
you have because you are you're analysing yourselves and I guess you're trying to keep it in check. It, it's inspirational, probably at times devastating, but at the same time, if you don't put yourself in that context, how else can you do it? I guess the thing that I am always fascinated by originality, mm. and I think that obviously you've talked a lot about the process and the, the I guess the insight and the, the culture that creates that. Where does it, where does that sit? Is, are there moments where you've done everything? Everything is right, and this is an utterly original situation. It's its context is completely different, but ultimately, is there an underlying? I mean, I guess for me, mostly. The problem itself defines the the originality because nothing mm. quite come together the way you've you've seen it or the way you've observed it and the way you've solved it. But are there moments where you think about is this truly breathtakingly original? Where do you sit on that? There must be there must be moments because your work is so it's so you, but it's so it's not fashionable. It's sort of beyond that. Oh, that's fantastic. I think it's, it's it's extremely hard to do that all the time. And I know even in the studio, I mean, we pin things up all the time. And and even from one brief to a completely different project, you suddenly see a thread of of that thinking within that other within a completely different client. So it is very hard to, you know, continually be original. But I think it's the point that you made before, which is really understanding the challenge and being being more purposeful and calculated for whatever that problem or challenge might be, because often there's never ever the same problem. And if we can make sure we can adhere to that, then then the originality is there. It is very hard as well in this world of social media and when you've got a team of designers and they can they're, they're trained to make things look good very, very quickly. And so you've got these people coming out of design school that have all of the technical skills. They can use the social media world so fast and they can quickly grab things and pull them together. And, and as a creative director, it's your job to almost try and always be one step ahead of that, which is very hard when you've got sort of 14 people all kind of coming up with different ideas. So, you know, part of that is that challenge, those working in duos and also continually challenging, doing to them what what the mentors do to us, Mm -hmm. continually challenging them and getting them to articulate what it is that they're doing. And through the articulation and through that working as two people, it often will either uncover something that might not be completely original or hasn't really been considered. And I think that idea of duos, we oft, I'll often take something someone's working on and then give it to someone else and they start working on it. And the designer at the time will, will feel like, oh, no, I, I, you know, I wanted to finish that. I knew where that was going to go. And you've just ripped that out of my hands and I, and I thought I could finish that. But often... It's through the two things coming together that you might get some awkwardness or some uncomfortableness in the design, but that actually makes it more original or or they'll challenge each other's ideas in a way which can actually result in a, in a more original response. That's enforced collaboration. Enforced. Right there, <laughs> I don't know, brutally enforced, I think. So, um, Mercado, obviously, you know, advertising and industry I work in is full of disruption and difficulty. And obviously, from a design point of view, you have your own subset of of issues um, or opportunities, let's say. But if I think particularly about voice, what we're heading into in terms of the relationship that individuals will have with brands 
But where does design sit? I know that's probably kind of yeah. quite a big question, but from you know, where does design sit in that sense? My hope is that design becomes even there's going to be an even stronger need, especially um, a more considered design. I mean, if we just look at maybe an example like Apple, with Apple what they've been able to do is have less stores, but the stores that they have produced are much greater experiences of the brand and are a truer reflection of the brand rather than just being a retail store that gets rid of stock quickly. They're actually far more about education, bringing in different communities of people, different understandings of what the technology can do. And they have used um, sort of beacon technology and voice as a vital part of that communication tool. But the, f- the entire experience is, is, is stronger for it. So if we could think about that as, a, as an innovative model, and we could think about how that applies in our own world. For instance, we're doing Coco Black at the moment. I've been working with Simon Crow on Coco Black. We've been working on what is, he came to us and said, I need new packaging. And we actually said, well, we, we actually need to know what the strategy of the whole business is and what the long-term goals are and, and what is your, you know, how what is your difference to, to other um, chocolate companies in, in Australia. So, so we sort of worked on all of that and now we're working on what is that entire experience and what is the voice. And it's very hard to actually define everything into a voice. And it's only when you've really completed a very strong strategy and a whole identity that you can actually, we've found, start to understand what is the voice of of that brand. The only analogy I could think of was it's sort of almost like children and they begin and they move and they start to eat and they show emotion before they even start to speak. So they've sort of got all their DNA there moulded and then they start to have that voice. And we found with creating voice, you have to have a really rigorous strategy and rigorous thinking through the identity and then the voice, you know, is the last part. So what I hope is bringing in this element of voice needing to be so important as part of a brand going forward the thinking before that needs to really be very rigorous and strong because we can't just jump straight into what does it sound like because we're going to get it all completely completely wrong. I find designers do voice so well and I, I, I've never been able to understand why and I think that actually gives a really great insight into it, Michaela. Thank you. Michaela, it's just been really wonderful uh, having a chat with you today. Thank you. Um, but as you know, part of the part of the gig, the thing that you've signed up for is you must come back uh, and you obviously have to choose someone that you want to chat to, someone that inspires you. So would you be able to give us a hint, just a few clues as to who you'll be talking to next time? The person that I've chosen and the reason why I've chosen uh, this person is quite a prolific designer, has had quite a changing career and has travelled and, and has, you know, set up practices in different parts of the world, but but has always been able to do very, very strong work in wherever he's, um, you know, wherever he's been able to set up. And what's really interesting is the work and, and understanding how he's able to measure and substantiate and qualify the work that his practice is able to produce and he's had to redefine his whole practice and he's been able to use his own thinking on how to redefine that practice and split that practice up into many many parts and I think it's gonna be really interesting to talk about why that happened. Sounds very interesting indeed so we look forward to that. So James thank you so much for your contribution 
uh, over these two episodes. It's been amazing. Pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And Michaela, we shall see you next time on the Creative Relay. Wonderful. See you soon. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com, made by our good friends at Macadamia Digital, where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. I'll be back next time with Michaela's guest. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe, like and rate us. See you next time.